Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hi, this is Daniel McGinn, author of Psyched Up, How the Science of Mental Preparation Can Help You Succeed. And you're listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which is named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, which is also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And marketingbookpodcast.com is also where you can send me a message with any comments, suggestions, or recommendations for the show. I love hearing from listeners like you from around the world. I'm also on Twitter. My Twitter handle is marketingbook or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. I respond to every single message I get from listeners, so please introduce yourself. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome Daniel McGinn to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, Psyched Up how the science of mental preparation can help you succeed. Daniel McGinn is a senior editor at Harvard Business Review, where he edits the Idea Watch and How I Did It sections and manages the magazine's annual best-performing CEOs in the world ranking and edits feature articles on topics including negotiation, sales, and entrepreneurship. Prior to joining HBR in 2010, Daniel spent 17 years at Newsweek as a reporter, bureau chief, national correspondent, and senior editor. He's appeared as a guest on NBC's Today Show, the CBS Morning Show, PBS's NewsHour, CNN, CNBC, MSNBC, and NPR. And his freelance writing has appeared in many magazines, including Wired, Inc., Fast Company, and the Boston Globe magazine. In addition to Psyched Up, he's the author of House Lust, America's Obsession with Our Homes, and was the editor of How I Did It, Lessons from the Front Lines of Business. And, interesting fact, he was an offensive lineman on the Warren Hills Regional High School football team in Washington Township, New Jersey. Daniel, congratulations on Psyched Up, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks. That's the most detailed introduction I've gotten in quite some time, and I think it's the first one that ever mentioned my football experience, uh, so I'll definitely remember that one. Yes. Well, as a graduate of, of Warren Hills Regional High School, do you do you still have a deep animosity toward their arch rival, the Hackettstown High School Tigers? It's funny. I was on Twitter a few Friday nights ago, and I noticed that Warren Hills was playing the Hackettstown Tigers, and I was definitely checking to see what the score was unfortunately the bad guys won this year but it's 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 definitely a game i still uh pay attention to and keep my eye on so this year was a loss for the blue streaks this year was a loss it was a loss i think uh, otherwise the blue streaks had a fairly good season um 
So, uh, yeah, this is, I believe me, there is no one anywhere near Washington, New Jersey that remembers me as a football player. Uh, if, if I got into the game, it was a sign that things were either going spectacularly well or spectacularly poorly, because if the game was still on the line, I was nowhere near the, the offensive line. Oh, good. Well, so you're able to save yourself for, for your future golf career that you, you talk about in your book. Yeah, my uh, my favorite comment after one of my football games was when I came off the field and my then high school girlfriend looked at me and said, "Well, the great news is you won't need to wash your uniform." <laughs> it's important to your to learn humility at a young age, though. So it's, I hope hopefully that's done you well. I should say that in preparation for this interview, Daniel, I did not take any of the performance enhancing drugs outlined in the last chapter of your book, which we can talk about later. Good. Well, I am drug-free this morning except for caffeine. I have a cup of coffee in my left hand, so we're good. Okay, good. So for the listener's benefit, this book is a bit of a departure from the normal marketing and sales books that we have on the show, but I thought it would be particularly helpful for almost every listener because everyone has to perform at some point, whether it's making a sale or a presentation or certainly in sports. But I'd like to start out with an excerpt from page 11. Many of us can profit from a better pre-performance routine. As the nature of work has changed, many professional success or failure is now less dependent on repetitive daily tasks and instead based on a thin slice of evaluative moments. Working on projects involves more crucial first impressions, followed by more final presentations. Self-employment and the gigs and side hustles of modern life require people to interview for jobs or sell their services more frequently. Think of it as the shark tank economy in which we have more riding on the ability to deliver a pitch under pressure. If you work 2,000 hours a year, but your overall success rests mostly on your performance during a couple of dozen crucial hours at pitch meetings, sales calls, a key conversation with your boss, and so on, the tools in this book should help you to do better. So, Daniel, tell us why you wrote this book, particularly as it relates to your high school athletic career, which we've touched on already. Sure. So the idea, the first idea for this book really does go back to high school. I was not a great athlete, but I was on the football and basketball teams. And I became fascinated by the things the coaches would do before the games to try to get us in the right emotional mindset to perform. You know, we had lots of rituals. We listened to certain songs on the bus. We had pep talks. We focused on that rivalry with our, you know, our key opponents in the conference. So there was a lot of sort of amateur psychology going on. And I I became fascinated by it even as a teenager. When I got older, I would occasionally run into professional people, lawyers, accountants, doctors, who were former athletes who had some version of getting psyched up before they would do their important kinds of work. And then the third thing was when I started working at Harvard, I started seeing actual academic research that looked into what works and what doesn't. And at that point, that's when I said, you know, there's really a book here because this is not just ad hoc, make it up on the fly stuff. There's actual science that suggests what you should do and what you should not do before these you know, high stakes moments. Mm-hmm. So in order to perform well, can you talk about if it's it's best to try to calm down as so we so often hear about or should we try to embrace the adrenaline rush that we all seem to get? Well, so I think the first thing you need to realize is that 
if you're feeling anxious and nervous and kind of sweaty before you're you know, going out to make a pitch or before you're making a key sales call, first, that's normal. That's your body's biology. You know, the reason that we've, we are still on the planet so many thousands of years after humans came out of the swamp is because we have this fight or flight instinct. And when we feel a threat, our body responds to it. Now, you know, most of the time we're not being chased by lions or tigers anymore. Instead, we're going into situations where we feel like our job might be at risk or our status might be at risk. So our body still responds to that in a very sort of primeval way. In terms of how you deal with that adrenaline, you know, it'd be great if we each had a knob on our back and that we could sort of dial that adrenaline and the anxiety all the way down to zero. The reality is you're not going to be able to do it. You're fighting against your biology. You know, you can definitely take steps to try to dial it down a bit. Um, But instead of trying to just be super calm, uh, some of the research shows it's better to think of yourself as excited, which is a, a very highly agitated kind of emotional state, but it's a positive one. You know, one of the general things you learn when you look into the psychology of all this is that before you perform, you want to try to find a way to focus on the positive things instead of the negative things. And so nervousness is a negative form of it. Excitement is a positive form of it. And that can make a difference. Mm-hmm. So in the book, it says, no matter what anyone tells you, don't obsess over calming down. (laughs) Instead, tell yourself the sweaty palms and racing heart are a positive sign because they signify excitement. Try to channel the Pointer Sisters. Now that's based on their song, I'm So Excited. But what are some of the things that you can do to try to channel more of the excitement rather than the the feeling that you're too excited? So a lot of it is focusing on an opportunity mindset and focusing on the upside rather than the downside. Let's say that you and I had a startup and we were pitching it to venture capitalists. And, you know, it's very hard to get a meeting with venture capitalists. And when you get that meeting, you feel like there's a lot riding on it. And there is. So we could just sit out in the waiting room before that meeting and worry and be nervous and focus on, you know, the fact that if we don't succeed in this meeting, we may never get the startup off the ground or we can go into it and focus on the fact that you know these guys say no to hundreds of people a day they said yes to us we've already gotten some success just to get into this room you know there's no guarantee of course but there's tremendous upside to this focus on the opportunity of it again it's it's focusing on everything that can go right in this moment as opposed to being sort of a doomsday scenario you know oh no if if we don't get this we're we're done. So a lot of it comes down to that, that sort of self-talk and trying to keep it on the focusing on the upside and the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what you mean in the book when you say getting psyched up isn't really an on-off switch, but more of a volume knob? Yeah. When I, back you know, in the high school football days, when we would get amped up before a game, we did think of it as an on-off switch. It was all about adrenaline. It was all about our energy level. Once you actually start to read the literature on this and once you start talking to psychologists about it, you find out that adrenaline is part of it, but it has a lot more to do with your emotions and it's a lot more subtle. Um, the three the three things that I think about as sort of a more complex way to get psyched up are you want to find techniques that help you boost your confidence level, really crank that confidence level up almost as high as you can get it. You want to find a, find a way to manage your anxiety, knowing that it's not going to go down to zero but that you want to make, want to try to get it to a point where it's not going to interfere with your ability to perform. And then the third thing is your energy level. You know, if you're going into a one-on-one meeting 
that's a lot different kind of energy than if you're talking to a room of 300 people. So you got to sort of manage your energy level so that it's appropriate to the scale and the kind of task you're about to do. So those are the three knobs that I focus on, anxiety, confidence, and energy. Now, in the book, you talk about a concept I've heard about but didn't know too much about. I still think it seems kind of hard to do, but can you explain this idea, this concept of centering and what goes on there? It definitely is hard to do. Centering is a process that originated out of martial arts in the 1960s, and it's a sequence of breathing and thought exercises that some people do, especially classical musicians are are taught to do this before they audition or before they go on stage. Um, I, you know, there's a sort of a step-by-step process to it, but it's a lot like yoga or meditation. It's hard to just explain to somebody how to do it. It's almost like you need to be taught it or experience it. If somebody's interested in learning more, the best thing to do really is YouTube has some great videos on centering that show people doing it step-by-step. It's one of these things you really need to demonstrate it rather than talk about it. I, it, it hasn't worked very well for me, to be honest, but I've met plenty of people who've been trained at it that say, give me 15 seconds and I can bring that anxiety level and quiet that mind before I take the stage. And that's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about pre-performance rituals that you describe a few in the book, which are crazy. <laughs> it seemed crazy. Like you talk about Stephen Colbert and all these different types of people. Can the pre-performance ritual or Uh, routine really increase success? So there's a lot of research that shows that it does. And as you point out, some people's pre-performance routines are very task-oriented. You know, everything they do makes sense in relation to the task they're about to do. So Jerry Seinfeld is one of the people I interviewed for the book. So what does he do before a comedy show? Well, he sits backstage very quietly. He's got the same piece of music on every time. He reviews his note cards with his bits on them, and then at exactly five minutes before the curtain, his stage manager comes over, gives him his his jacket, he puts his sports jacket on, and then he walks in a certain pattern. And the way he described it to me was, that's my signal for my body to do our little trick. Um, So, you know, very logical. There's nothing crazy about that. Colbert, as you reference, he has a hotel bell that he rings. He does certain hand gestures with every member of the backstage staff. He chews on a big pen. He's got sort of all this crazy stuff he does backstage. Very different approaches. But what the research suggests is that, number one, People are are creatures of habit, and we like having sort of these rituals. You know, you go to church, churches generally, there's sort of a sequence of things that you do and you say, our bodies sort of like that habit. And number two, especially during these moments before you perform, there's a tendency to worry and a tendency to be anxious. And one of the things that these rituals do is they give you something else to focus on, something to distract you during a time when otherwise you might be just sitting there thinking negative thoughts. Um, So for people who don't have something they do in those last moments before they do something that ordinarily would be pretty nervous making, I think there is a lot of upside to having a plan and just sort of coming up with, you know, they don't have to be bizarre or crazy sorts of things, but a set of things that are going to tweak those volume knobs for you to try to decrease your anxiety, increase your confidence, and make sure you're thinking positive thoughts instead of negative thoughts. Now, let's just get into the weeds for just a moment here. Very interesting. You talk about like three overlapping circles. And can you explain the difference between a routine, a ritual, and superstitious behaviors. Yeah, it's funny. They are, so they are. There is a Venn diagram aspect to it, and there aren't a hundred percent clear 
cut definitions of all this, but a routine is a specific sequence of thoughts and actions that someone does before they perform. So if you watch golf, golf players, whether they're on the, in the tee box or whether they're on the putting green, they tend to do the same thing every time before they address the ball. And there's a reason for that because it's proven that it, it helps them do what they were taught to do in practice. Um, so they sort of have a routine there. Rituals are when it becomes, you know, somewhat more magical and has a little bit less connection with the actual task at hand. So when Stephen Colbert is ringing hotel bells or chewing on big pens, that really gets into the realm of ritual. When you get into superstition, that's when you're, you know, you, you meet people who ha they might have lucky objects or they have almost obsessive compulsive kind of things. So the one that people talk about a lot up here in Boston where I am is Wade Boggs, who was a player for the Boston Red Sox back in the 80s and 90s. Mm -hmm. And he would eat chicken before every game. He would run sprints at exactly the same time before every game. He would draw symbols in the dirt before he went up to the batting box to take his at-bats. Um, and when it approaches that sort of almost obsessive level, like you worry if you don't do it, something bad is going to happen to you, that's when it reaches the superstition level. Right. I think you said that for every night game, he would do batting practice at 517. Yeah, exactly. And there was a story that one of the opposing teams became aware of this, and they would actually adjust the clocks so that the clocks would skip that number just to try to freak him out. So you do when you do these rituals, you do need to become aware that you know if you become so focused on the power of them, and it can be one more almost a performance act that you can screw up or that somebody can mess with you about. Um, so there is, you know, there's definitely that kind of downside if you if you take it to that kind of extreme. Mm -hmm. Now. You talked about some actors that had their individual rituals before a performance, and then I think one of those same actors went to a different production, and they had group rituals. What is one better than the other? If you have your own rituals and you then have to do a group ritual, does that decrease your effectiveness? Well, it depends on the kind of activity you're doing. I mean, in our, if you think about our work lives today, our work lives are much more team oriented than they used to be. A lot of us spend a lot of our days collaborating with colleagues. And there's research actually out of Harvard where they did, they tried to understand how these rituals, these group rituals would help people. So they would assign different teams tasks. They're sort of like scavenger hunt kind of things. But what they would do is they'd have a couple of groups before they did the task, they'd have the group perform some sort of a ritual. Then they'd have another group that didn't. And then over time, they would test which kinds of groups did better. And in general, the groups that performed a ritual together, they did the task better. They reported liking each other more afterwards. And, you know, they just, the researchers watched and saw, wow, a lot of the people who did the ritual, they're actually going out to lunch afterwards. They're keeping in touch with each other. Um, in the Broadway anecdote that I told in this, in the book, a lot of actors were, you know, they do yoga or they listen to playlists backstage alone. This one director, Ian Rickson, he really believes that it's important for the cast to bond every night before they go on the stage together. So he gets them in the lobby and they're, he has them toss bean bags and play word games and just something to try to get them to be a cohesive unit. And the actors also, they really liked it and they want to do that for, for every show they're on from now on. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's something to think about for all the CEOs or the sales managers or department heads out there. These, these can be uh, fun things too. Yeah, it's funny. I was so at my job, uh, I have been on some podcasts for Harvard Business Review where I work, and I was 
uh, we taped one a few weeks ago, and there were three or four of us in the studio, which is unusual. It was sort of a larger group than usual. And one of the guests actually said to us, she's like, hey, you know, I did some improv training when I was younger. And before we did improv, we used to do this thing to try to get us all on the same page. So let's just take 30 seconds and do this. And it was this sort of clapping game where you were clapping in a circle, and it was kind of fun, and it loosened us up, and it, you know, it required sort of touching hands with the other people. And it wasn't like the most elaborate thing in the world and it wasn't highly ritualistic, but it was a nice little warm up to sort of get our group loose before we started recording. Mm -hmm. And if I'm on podcasts regularly as a host, I would absolutely have something like I, that I did like that to try to get every everybody, you know, sort of warmed up and cohesive and caring about each other and focused on mutual success. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to high school again and talk about pep talks. I, I too played football in, in high school and other sports, and just and then I was in the military. And those organized sports in the military, they seem to be uh, very at home with emotional pep talks. The question is, do they make any difference? It's a good question. There is some research on that in this. There's not a ton of research on it, but there is some research in the sports realm. I found somebody who did some studies out of Michigan State on that. The studies showed that in general, players like hearing the pep talks if they're done well, that they do feel that it helps them focus and they do feel that it helps them with their performance. Um, it's hard to actually like do an A-B study where you know one group gets a pep talk and goes and plays soccer and the other group doesn't. So these are not sort of you know definitive clinical kinds of studies, but in terms of what players say about the efficacy of them, the players generally would prefer, especially before a big game, to hear a pep talk than to just be sent out there on their own. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about General McChrystal as an example where he gave a lot of pep talks, but what he found to be more effective for the different types of groups he was talking to? Yeah, it's definitely – you need to keep in mind the audience and the nature of the task. In terms of the science of the pep talk, there's basically three elements according to the research. There's the direction-giving, strategy-giving piece of the pep talk, the actual X's and O's of what you want the people to do. There's a piece of the talk called empathy building where the leader tries to show personal care and concern for the followers, you know, recognizing the task is hard, saying how much he appreciates what they're doing. And then the third element is meaning making where you try to emphasize why what I'm asking you to do is important, even if it might seem very quotidian, you know, very sort of menial labor kind of thing. Um, McChrystal, one of the things he said is, you know, if I'm talking to a group of 18-year-olds who just enlisted in the army, who've never been in combat before, I'm going to need to give a much more emotional uh, and empathetic kind of talk than if I'm talking to a group of Navy SEALs who've been in the service for 20 years, who are out fighting every night. They don't need motivation. They don't need a lot of emotion. They need to know the X's and O's, what we're going to do. So calibrating how much strategy giving versus how much emotion you're going to do, it definitely depends on who you're talking to and the kind of task you're asking them to do. Mm -hmm. Now, it seems like every Olympics, one of the hot topics is what is the musical playlist each athlete has? <laughs> What's on it? Like Michael Phelps would listen to uh, uh, all kinds of rap music and, and, and there's just all different kinds of things out there. And a lot of people will listen to music while they're exercising. Can you explain what difference this makes towards helping somebody uh, energize and, and, and focus, if it does at all? 
Yeah, there's so there's been actually a ton of studies on that. Some of them go back as far as 100 years. But in the last 15 years in particular, since the advent of the iPod and the streaming music services that have made it really easy for people to have their playlists and to manipulate them and to have them on their person at all times, there's been a lot more research into this. And it does make a difference. There's a lot of studies have looked at sort of exercise where they'll take a bunch of people who generally run at about the same pace and they'll have one group listen to, say, the theme from Rocky and they'll have another group not listen to anything. And then they'll send them out and race each other and the people who listen to the music perform better. Um, the researcher who does a lot of this work is over in Great Britain. And he goes so far as to say motivational music is a legal performance enhancing drug and you know if you are not using music as a source to energize you and help you feel sort of more powerful before you're performing you're you're missing out you're you're not using one of the tools that a lot of people could benefit from what is it about a piece of music that makes it motivational there's two elements according to the research the first element is what they call the intrinsic musicality which is a fancy academic way of saying how it sounds um if the first time you hear a piece of music, you've never heard it before, but it makes you feel kind of energized and uh, more lively, the tempo, the beat, the words, the, the harmonies, etc., then you're reacting to the intrinsic musicality. The second factor is the emotional connection or the context. So if you hear a certain song and it brings you back to a meaningful moment in your life, maybe it was your prom song, or maybe it played at your wedding, or maybe it was one of the songs you warmed up to when you were a high school school athlete or maybe it reminds you of something that happened in college a lot of a lot of people when you talk to them about their psych up songs they're often songs from that formative adolescent period of late teenage college kind of era um, so those are the two elements that come together uh, and if you look at spotify for instance a lot of people on spotify have psych up lists and a lot of them tend to be songs from like the 80s 90s you know songs that were popular when a lot of today's adults were teenagers yeah you mentioned that it's like a lot of bon jovi and van halen and kiss quite quite a bit of that in fact uh, i noticed that you have a psych up list I guess you curated it. Is that right? It's on Spotify? So I think uh, my book publisher, I think, made a list that involved every song that was mentioned in the book. Um, so I don't think those are necessarily my personal choices. Those are are songs that because one of the things that came across in this reporting it, it was sort of interesting you know like what's the classic psych up song everybody thinks of eye of the tiger and so i went out and i spent some time with the guy who wrote eye of the tiger which he's a fascinating guy um but i also met people i met a woman whose psych up song is the soundtrack from annie the sun will come out tomorrow because that makes her feel sort of peppy and happy and it reminds her of visiting broadway when she was a teenager with her best friend um so you know there are generally some trends in what makes a piece of music motivational, but these are very personal choices, and your song is going to be very different than my song. Mm -hmm. We will do our best to include a link to that list of psych-up songs that are listened, listed in your book uh, at your episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. But can, can the wrong music hinder performance? That's an interesting question. So one of the things you need to be concerned about is say you had a playlist and you used it for motivation and say you played it every day. So if you become over familiar with a song, certainly the power that you feel from it, whatever boost it gives you could go away. So that's one issue. Another issue is so the guy in 
Great Britain who studies this, he was a competitive runner for a long time. And he says one of the things he would see is a lot of people would train while listening to music, whether they're in the gym or they're where they're where their headphones out when they're on their long runs. But if you go into a very competitive race, people aren't allowed to wear headphones. So that would be a problem because you're not practicing the way you're actually going to perform. So you do need to be a little bit concerned with that kind of thing. In baseball, I, I spent some time with the DJ at Fenway Park in here in Boston where the Red Sox play. And he helps those players choose the music that they're going to hear before they walk up to the plate for their at-bats and the music that they're going to warm up to. But when they go on the road, they don't get any of that. The away team doesn't get musical selections in baseball. So that music is actually part of the hometown advantage and you need home field advantage. And so you need to be aware that, you know, if you become too reliant on these things as a source of motivation, it's not always going to be there for you. And then I think you said the the away team, they listen to organ music. They do. And I actually got kind of a not pleasant note from the Fenway Park organist afterwards uh, because he thought that I was casting aspersions on organ music. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with organ music. It's just if you, you know, a lot of the baseball players today would prefer to listen to like rap. You know, Drake is big. Jay-Z is big. And if that's your chosen musical genre for motivation and suddenly you're listening to this sort of accordion-like organ music, it's not necessarily what you want to be hearing. (laughs) That's great. Well, listen, just as a, a special treat for those super fans of the Marketing Book Podcast, I'm going to include a little video that I watch before each interview, and it's a video of a German DJ, and it just gets me psyched up, and I want to be as excited as he is. So go to the show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, and you'll all see it there. Let's talk just a minute about something that I don't think I can really control too well, but trying to you, you talk about you know your conscious mind, your subconscious mind, autopilot. How can you affect these things? Yeah, so the element of subconscious when it comes to psyching up is um, related to – there's a whole academic literature on a subject called priming, which is these sort of subtle subconscious thoughts that are planted in your mind. One of the best-known examples of it is actually by a Harvard researcher named Amy Cuddy who's done research on something called power posing. Her research suggests that – People who adopt a very expansive pose, say say like Superwoman with legs, you know, legs spread apart, uh, arms on your hips, you know, your chest out, that sort of super superhero kind of pose, that you're more confident, you're more powerful. She's actually done research that shows your body chemistry changes. She tested saliva, and it showed that hormone levels were changing as a result of this. Her research is controversial. Some people don't actually believe that this is a true effect, but there's other kinds of research that suggest the same thing, that you can sort of subtly manipulate your mind by the photos that you're seeing before you perform or by the kind of words that you're hearing. It's almost like this um, subliminal kind of stuff that they used to talk about on movie theater screens. You know, I think that you can control this stuff in subtle ways. So why do high school, you go back to the high school sports, when you walk into an opposing team's gym, the first thing you see is their trophy case. And the second thing you see overhead are all the banners of all the championships that they've won. So why is that stuff there? Well, it's there partly to remind the home team of how successful they've been. And it's there partly to intimidate the opposing team saying, you're coming into our house and we've had a lot of success for a long time here. Um, so that's a very subtle form of priming. Mm-hmm. Can you also talk about the concept of system one and system two is, is described by Daniel Kahneman in his best-selling book, Thinking Fast and Slow, and, and, and how that is related to becoming psyched up. Yeah, so when um, System 1 and System 2 
refer to whether you want to be sort of actively and consciously thinking about something while you do it or whether you want to sort of put yourself on autopilot and just do something automatically. So many of us who are adults who've been driving for a long time, when we drive to work, that's system two. We don't really think about driving to work anymore. It just sort of happens. How this plays into getting psyched up, part of what you're trying to do when you get psyched up is to avoid choking, choking the idea that, you know, it's a clutch, it's it's a very important performance and because of the pressure associated with it, you're going to fail. There's a lot of research that suggests that choking is the result of overthinking activities that you shouldn't that you should be using system 2 on but you sort of divert into system 1 so trying to figure out whether something is you know whether you want to think about something or you just want to step up to the plate and do it that's one of the decisions you need to do before you perform that's what system 1 and system 2 refer to and there's research that suggests it does play into whether or not people choke mhm now and this is the last time I'm going to take us back to high school. Can you talk about if focusing on a competitor makes us stronger or doesn't matter? And perhaps you can talk about that pep rally at Warren Hills yeah. Regional High School. <laughs> wow, this is. I, I hope we get great listenership in uh, Warren County, New Jersey, for this show. This is uh, this is great. Um, so yeah, when I was thinking about writing this book, one of the things I thought back to was we had a, a arch rival called Hackettstown High School. It was a town about ten miles away from us. And we already the, know how you feel about them. Go ahead. Yeah, the pep rally before that game during my senior year the local florist came in right in the middle of the pep rally with a box and the coach opened it in front of the whole school and it was filled with dead flowers in our team colors with a nasty note from our arrivals over at Hackettstown. And this made our team really, really angry. They actually brought the flowers on the bus and brought them on the field. This was something that really ticked off our team. I think we ended up winning the game like 27 to 3 or something like that. And looking back, this was 30 years ago, I talked with some of the players when I was reporting the book and they're like, yeah, those flowers, that actually made a big difference. We were really angry. The kicker to that story is we later learned that it was our own coaches that sent us the flowers. The other team hadn't had anything to do with it. Our coaches realized it would make us angry. And in football, if you're angry, you might play better. Um, so there is some research that in that for certain kinds of people in certain kinds of scenarios, being angry or feeling insulted or disrespected or focusing on the rival with hostility feelings um, can make you more effective. And that leads to or helps to explain a lot of the trash talking that goes on in sports. Right. Uh, and trash talk is it's prevalent across sports. There's a, it's actually – I've read a lot of research on it, and some of it's really stunning in terms of they ask athletes, at what age did you first encounter trash talk? And the answers were generally like at 12 or 13. The prevalence of like, you know, you know, people insulting each other's families. And it gets, you know, even in like youth sports, it can get really nasty down in the trenches there. And so why do people do that? Well – they're trying to distract or upset the opponent. Basically, you know, a lot of what's in this book is about how to manage your emotions before you perform or even during you perform. And what trash talk does is it disrupts the other person's emotions. And it can serve as a little bit of motivation to the person who's doing the trash talk. So it's a very delicate sort of thing. You know, some people do it better than others. I'm not a very big trash talker. It's not a technique that would work very well for me. Um, but I know people who really thrive on it. Well, and I also got the impression that it, it, it does backfire, and it, it works better in certain instances and, and not others. Like, back to the anger part, I think you said that if you need more fine motor skills for the sport, the anger actually can, can hurt you. 
Yeah, there's research that shows that the more power that a sport requires, like powerlifting or football or explosive kinds of motions, that being angry can help in those. Um, but if it's a fine motor skill sport, it's probably less helpful. And yeah, you're right. Actually, since the book came out, there's new research by a guy named Jeremy Yip out of the Wharton School in Pennsylvania that looks at the the fact that when you trash talk at someone, it can lead to retaliation and actually increase their motivation. And so this idea, you know, intuitively, I think people know that it's sort of like if you heckle a comedian on a stage, the comedian's going to come back at you, you know, and in trash talk, that happens too. Not only are they verbally going to come back at you, but it can actually serve to increase the opponent's effort. Right, right. And it can actually get the audience on the comedian's side (laughs) when a heckler starts. Absolutely. So the last chapter of the book was really a big surprise, and it had to do with taking medicine. And I don't mean like performance-enhancing things like steroids, like you hear about with the athletes, but should people think about medicating their way to higher performance? And can you talk a bit about modafinil? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, so that's one of the drugs. So it's interesting. When I started writing the book, I didn't necessarily plan for there to be a chapter on drugs, but especially when I was reporting on stage fright and I was talking to people who have a lot of anxiety about public speaking or presenting, over and over I heard people telling me about beta blockers, this drug that their doctor had given them to help them deal with stage fright. And it came up often enough that I felt like I needed to address it. So there's a, the last chapter in the book, I look at beta blockers, which are basically it's a cardiac drug invented in the 1960s that helps you, um, it makes your body less reactive to adrenaline. So all this, the sort of markers, visible markers of nervousness, you know, the short breath, the blinking, the sweating, for some people, their voice goes higher when they get nervous. Um, those things tend to be diminished for people who are on beta blockers. So I, I know a lot of people who use this before they speak nowadays, and I actually tried it myself while I was reporting the book. The other drug, as you said, is modafinil, which is a drug that a lot of computer kind of people or traders take. It lets people work for very long periods of time. It's an alert. It helps people stay alert. It's actually an anti-narcolepsy drug. Um, it's definitely controversial. They don't really exactly know how it works inside your brain other than when you take this drug, you just don't seem to need as much sleep for a very long time. Um, so I've tried that sparingly, and I only took it a couple times. I was actually surprised in the course of reporting the book. I went to my doctor and I asked for these drugs, and I expected to have a hard time getting them, but it was actually fairly easy. <laughs> so interesting, yeah. But I guess gather from reading it that it had an effect the first time, and then after that, you had fitful sleeping, and then you didn't really notice much difference afterwards. So I haven't taken the modafinil in – I took it a couple of times while I was reporting the book, and I haven't taken it since. You know, there are are probably times when I need to be able to work 18 hours in a day, but – it's not necessarily the most pleasant way to live one's life. I, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather sort of, you know, stay on top of my deadlines and try to take on a reasonable amount of work. And I feel like if I'm consistently having to put in crazy long days, I'm doing something wrong and I shouldn't need to medicate myself to productivity. With the beta blockers, I have, you know, I think that's a more reasonable, more medically proven, you know, people have been taking beta blockers to deal with stage fright for 40 years. It's a well-understood drug. And in situations, especially where there's like, if I'm going to be on television, I'll think about whether that might be helpful to me. Situations where I know that there's something going on that's going to make me a little bit more nervous than I would like to be to perform at my best. 
And what I say about this for in terms of the advisability of other people, I would say, listen, there's a lot of things you can do short of taking drugs to get more comfortable in a public speaking situation. But if you've tried everything, if this is you know causing you to actually not perform as well in your career as you would like to, then it might be worth a conversation with your doctor about whether this is going to help. Well said. And I think there's a lot to be said for practicing. Oh, no question. Yeah. <laughs> Before you have to get to the drugs and all those other yeah, th- sort of things. Yeah. Nothing in the books su- should suggest that practice isn't important. But what I argue is that, you know, and I, one of the places I visited while reporting the book was the Juilliard School. And obviously, you don't get to Juilliard unless you've played your instrument a hell of a lot for a lot of years. So those people have practiced more than anybody we know. But they still take a psychology course to try to understand the techniques to help them feel better before they audition because even if you're a great violinist, if you get nervous and your hands get sweaty and you can't finger the strings correctly, you're not going to get the gig. So finding a set of techniques for that green room moment before you take the stage is really important in all kinds of work. Here, here. So Daniel, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? The big thing I I would argue is that you want to have a plan before you perform. You know, you and I are not Michael Phelps. We're not Tom Brady. We're probably not going to be in the next Olympics. But we do have these moments where our success is going to be determined by a 15-minute pitch, especially in marketing. So, you know, I think we do need to learn to use some of the techniques that these athletes use. You know, it might be music, it might be trash talk, it might be centering. There's a whole gamut of techniques described in the book. You know, they're not all for everybody. It's it's a matter, I think, of picking and choosing the couple that are going to work for you and then consistently develop a routine. So the main message is have a plan. Don't be that person sitting there just being nervous and worrying about what can go wrong because that's only going to increase the odds that something will go wrong. Mm -hmm. So looking back, what books jump out as having inspired your work and career? Well, probably the nonfiction writer that I admire the most is Malcolm Gladwell um, in terms of books that I think are well done and that I'd love to try to model some of my books after. So his stuff has been influential. You know, a lot of writing is is developing good habits and discipline. And the books that I've really enjoyed along those lines are the Charles Duhigg book, The Power of Habit. Um, Gretchen Rubin has a book called The Four Tendencies. In terms of sort of developing the discipline, those have been influential. And I noticed that Charles Duhigg provided a, a blurb for your book. He did. He did. He was getting blurbs is always one of those um, processes where you're asking people to be really generous. And um, Charles was one of the generous ones. So I appreciate it. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Uh, You know, I try to read broadly. You know, I have to read, obviously, a lot of business content for my job at Harvard Business Review. As the holidays come, I try to, you know, read non-business stuff. So I've got the the Grant biography, I've got the Da Vinci biography, and you know I try to read as widely as I can, and uh, just read good writers and uh, try to you know be inspired by them. Terrific, yes. Yeah, so just a, a word to the listener: a, a well balanced reading diet is recommended. Don't don't only read marketing and sales books. So, how best can listeners learn more about you and your book, Daniel? So I'm on Twitter at Dan McGinn. The book has a website. It's www.psychedupthebook.com. And some of my work is at Harvard Business Review, which is www.hbr.org. And in particular, 
Harvard Business Review did an article on the science of pep talks that was based on that chapter of the book that turned out well. The the article actually um, encapsulates that chapter very nicely. So if that piece of this discussion is interesting, if someone just Googles on the phrase the science of pep talks, that'll pop right up. Sure, they can do that. And as a service to the listener, we'll include a link to it at your show's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Let me just close with a quote from the end of the book. I hope the preceding chapters have led you to make some modifications to your pre-performance routine. Although Psyched Up isn't intended to be an explicit self-help book, I hope it's helped you think critically about how you should best spend the final moments before you perform and about the techniques that work best for you. The name of the book is Psyched Up, How the Science of Mental Preparation Can Help You Succeed. The author is Daniel McGinn. Daniel, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you. This was a great discussion. And that closes the book on episode 153 of the Marketing Book Podcast. Links to everything linkable in the interview you just listened to are at marketingbookpodcast.com, including the video I use to set myself up for each interview. And that's also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And if you have any feedback on or suggestions to improve the show, or perhaps if I could make a book recommendation, I'd love to hear from you. Just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave me a message or tweet at me. My Twitter handle is marketingbook or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. And please join us next time for a special holiday episode as we welcome John Rulin to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, Giftology, the art and science of using gifts to cut through the noise, increase referrals, and strengthen retention. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 